On this episode of the official Do Good Better podcast, I interview somebody that at the end, I seriously think we could have talked for four and a half hours. Karen Lee, who's the CEO of Pioneer Human Services, joined us today. And my goodness gracious, you are going to learn a ton. Yeah, she runs one of the largest social uh, enterprise organizations in the country, working with individuals who are or have been in the legal system. So we're talking about job uh, training. We're talking about uh, recovery programs. We're talking about, it, it is a, one of the more fascinating conversations I have had on the official Do Good Better podcast. I think you're going to have an amazing time listening to Karen. And by the way, this episode brought to you by Donor Doc. Listen, if you want a CRM system that doesn't suck, and I know you've probably been looking everywhere you possibly can, you're going to want to check out DonorDoc.com. They have everything you need from reporting to data entry to all of the things that remind you to call a donor. That has this in the system. If you don't know what to do, this system will remind you. That's how good it is. That's how intuitive it is. It's, uh, it, it's affordable. It's amazing. It's DonorDoc. Go to DonorDoc.com. Put in Do Good Better as your promo code. Get a month free on us. DonorDoc.com. Listen, let's get back to the show. Uh, this is incredible. Karen Lee, CEO, Pioneer Human Services out of Seattle, Washington. They are unbelievable. Excited for you to listen to the show this week. Your organization is awesome, but sometimes you want to be even awesomer. It's time to get your fundraising on with your host, fundraising expert and author, Patrick Kirby. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kirby. And of course, we talk uh, about things that are affecting small and medium-sized nonprofits. But what if there is a, uh, a group of individuals who are doing such amazing things that we just desperately wanted them to have a spot on the show to talk about uh, social enterprise? Uh, I've never uh, been so excited to look forward to something that was on my calendar then I have with our guest today on the podcast, Karen Lee. She is the CEO of Pioneer Human Services is with us. They are one of the, uh, the nation's largest social enterprise organizations in the country. We're going to talk about uh, the criminal justice system today. We're going to talk about the legal system. We're going to talk about all things with her. I am ecstatic. Karen, thank you so much for being on the official Do Good Better podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited. All right. So if somebody's scrolling through iTunes, they're throwing, scrolling through Facebook, they see your face, they see Pioneer Human Services. Sounds interesting, but they might not know exactly what you do. Can you kind of give us a 5,000 foot view on what your organization does, who you are, and kind of how you got to where you are today? Certainly. Our organization, um, it was founded to help people that have been involved in the justice system have a better life. It's as simple as that. Our founder uh, was uh, incarcerated in 1960. Mm. He was an attorney that um, was an alcoholic and uh, he drank up his client funds in, in our state. That's a felony mm -hmm. and it gets you charged in, in prison. And at that time he went to um, a penitentiary in our state and he entered AA and um, and at that time, volunteers would come into prisons uh, to have AA group. Uh, when he was released from prison, he decided that he wanted to found a company to help other people like him. And Pioneer was born. And, um, and he was a really uh, 
engaging personality that could attract people to his cause. So, um, and he had also run for political office prior. So he was able to uh, get some funding and he, he bought some land in Seattle uh, with one house. We call that Pioneer Pioneer Fellowship House. Mm -hmm. And it was called, and we're called Pioneer because we're pioneering in how we think about people and how we, and how we treat people. And that one little house has grown into um, one of our nation's largest social enterprise organizations with over 40 locations. We have a, um, a manufacturing company and a construction company um, that the profits from those entities support the organization's social mission. And, um, and then we also partner with uh, communities and governments and counties and states to offer services uh, with our donors so that we can help have people um, have a better life. And there's uh, just a lot of ways that we do that through treatment, through diversion services, through housing, through job training, and through obviously career opportunities at our organization. And today we have almost a thousand employees and um, we are still looking to grow and, and, um, and, and change we, we're trying to change laws, change minds, so that all people can have the, uh, the same quality of life in our country. You haven't uh, listened to this part of the show. You're jazzed about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, you've got something wrong with you because this is going to be amazing. And I think it's really timely for a couple of reasons. One, uh, statistic just came out recently that North Dakota, where we're broadcasting out of, uh, is the uh, fourth fastest growing prison system in the nation. Very strange for, uh, again, we've, we've been known for like COVID stats for the last month and a half. And now we're, apparently we're going to be known as the, one of the fastest growing uh, prison systems in the country. And, um, and I think it's really interesting that we're having this conversation just as our governor increased the budget in some of the, um, the vouchers that are given to individuals who are going through treatment in order for them to uh, do their best in order to prevent them from going back to a prison system that's already stacked mm -hmm. against individuals mm -hmm. who are um, facing uh, troubles and with addiction. Um, yes. There's a lot to unpack here. And I'm so excited and, and grateful for your time today. So let's maybe talk about um, the, the why itself. You have this uh, audacious idea that people who are and go to prison for mistakes are actually humans and should be treated as such. How dare you with such a <laughs> radical idea? Um, it, and, it, and it seems so funny to, to you and I, and maybe to most people listening, but the system itself is not built to recognize that people make mistakes and that they are humans. Can you talk a little bit about that within your mission and why that is such a crucial part to what you do and how you do it? It's really important. So one of the things that we say in Washington is that 95% of the people that are incarcerated return. Mm. So what good does it do society if all of those people, and the numbers are astounding, one in seven African-Americans, I mean, um, you know, have some type of justice uh, system impact, you know, on their record. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, uh, and, 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 the, and the origins of crime are things that we're still studying. I don't profess to be a crime expert, but I do read about it. And typically it involves trauma um, in many different ways. It involves um, many times it involves uh, exposure to violence. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's some type of deprivation that we may or may not uncover 
there may be some, you know, for women in particular, almost 100% of women who are incarcerated have been abused. So um, to expect a person that's been exposed to uh, trauma and trauma-like conditions in their early years to react in their adult years differently, I, I, I just, I think it's ludicrous on our part. Mm-hmm. So as a society, what we need to do is, is, is have some empathy and through our systems, try to ask why, as opposed to structurally start kicking children out of school in the first and second grade, where they then are unsupervised because maybe their parents are working or maybe their parents have poor parenting skills. Mm-hmm. Or maybe their parents have an addiction. There's just many reasons. And um, and then before you know it, that by the time the child is 15, which is when their criminogenic risk is at its peak, then they're doing things like stealing from 7-Eleven. Next, we're going to start putting them in, in jail overnight where they're around hardened individuals and then they're going to learn more things and then they when they're there they decide okay when I get out I'm going to be better they walk out they try to get a job they can't then they do what they know they can do or they will uh, fall back into gang-like activity and then the cycle becomes worse and 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 then you couple that with addiction and um and then the person digs their way out of it when they're in their 30s and they've had three or four um jail stints by this point and they don't have any job skills they have children that they could be possibly supporting or parenting and they're unable to do those things and then it starts you know this if they are able to be employed it's 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 only at minimum wage and it's not enough for them to feel good about themselves and um and then you see shortened lifespans and i can go on and on and on mm-hmm. not a pretty picture it's not. And that, again, the stresses of trying to get back up on your feet also sort of then spur additional uh, sort of substance abuse. And then the cycle starts all over again. And it just gets back to this endless uh, loop that then um, those who are not in the system look at it as, well, they can't just get the, out of their own way. Right. And so I love what you said about empathy. How can we, as someone, as, as groups of individuals who are not uh, involved with the criminal justice system or not involved in the legal system. Probably should be at some point. I mean, I spent my early 20s making dumb mistakes, but I never got caught. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's there's a difference here. And I think that's really something that we don't think about when we're being or we're trying to understand people or 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 being purposefully empathetic is you've done everything that other people are in jail for. You just didn't get caught. It's good for you. Lucky you. Um, but a lot of, I think, especially here in flyover country, when it comes to addiction, when it comes to, um, uh, you know, sort of low level sort of crime or whatever, you shouldn't have done that. You should have known better. How do we switch that mentality? I know we've got a list of things to chat about, but I'm so curious about this um, in, in how do we begin the conversation mm-hmm. to open the doors to an, an empathetic um, conversation with people who are privileged enough to not have been in this situation in the first place and understand that this is an epidemic in certain uh, groups of individuals. How do you begin that conversation? 
I think you asked me several questions, so I I'm did. going to. I, I some terrible. This is the, I should be better in the podcast. Just ask one question at a time. But there's so many that are layered on top of this, right? I mean, I just I feel like there's there's so much to chat about here. So the the question I'm going to answer is how can we be more empathetic? Yes. And I think that first, I'll be lighthearted and don't watch Law and Order. <laughs> my, you know, my daughter and I. I'm a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm hoping my daughter becomes a lawyer. And we would just sit and watch Law and Order. Doom, doom, doom. Right. We loved that show. We, we, we'd watch CSI. And did you ever think about how they portrayed the bad guy? You're going to go to Rikers forever. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, so the reason why I say that is, and those shows are popular. Right. Um. When we watch those TV shows, we are reinforcing negative stereotypes about people that get lodged in our head, Mm -hmm. that those people are bad and those people are evil. So, um, you know, as much as I love a good story, I've I, I always start my point with watch less Law and Order, watch less cop type shows because they um what they make us think about are is fiction and then we have the power to turn that fiction into reality by how we vote and by how how we implement um implement things so that's step one step two is if you are a victim um I'll never forget. So 2014, my father passed away. And about two months later, I was on a trip uh, in Southern California. I was visiting a company like mine, actually. And, um, and I had, uh, and so I had, I I had rented a car and I left uh, one of my briefcases in the car. And I had a book in there that my dad gave me when I was in middle school. And it was Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he had written, um, this note to me. And so, you know, um, I was, I was, I was still hurting from his passing. And so I had that book with me and don't, you know, um, someone broke into my car looking for drugs and they stole that book. And, and, and my, and out of all the things they could have taken, they could have taken the laptop, they could have taken, I mean, and they take something that is just precious. So you, and so my first thought was, you know, you're, you know, so I, I missed my next flight wandering around this tough area of San Francisco, trying to find this book, you know, diving through dumpsters and um, never could find the book. And, you know, and then you want the, you want this perpetrator locked up and put away. And, but I think that, um, you know, we have to look for grace in that situation Um and we have to challenge ourselves to, to rise above that. And, um, and I'm sure that whoever broke into my car, um, you know, was not in their right mind. And we have to be able to say, okay, what is best, you know, for this situation? Um, is it we put that person for 30 days in jail? I mean, what are they going to get for taking a book anyway? Uh, maybe they needed that book. But, um, but it's, it's, uh, so, so part of it is we, is we, you know, for those of us that are in, in whatever religion we're in, 
um, to, to try to, to, uh, to, to call on that in those times and call on basic humanity uh, because all major religions talk about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And so I, and, and I think that those are things that we have to ourselves do um, so that we don't become vindictive mm-hmm. because we want the entire world to be better, not just the people that are privileged, mm-hmm. so to speak, to not have, not have been born in that situation. It's so funny. So those are, yeah. No, yeah, those it, are two things I suggest. No, it's great. And it, it's, it's so funny when you teach your kids, you know, you have to point a finger, you know, for pointing right back at you kind of thing. I mean, these mm-hmm. are the things that you that constantly, um, you know, teach and then, but practicing them is a little more difficult, especially in the throes of like the, in the, in the passionate moment, you're like, you know, no, no, this is a, this, you've been wrong. I've been wronged. You're going to pay uh, rather than taking a deep breath and sort of analyzing the situation. And is that, is, is that, is that a culture thing? Is that a, um, uh, we've got a lot to sort of maybe overcome in our instant reaction to, well, this is the way it was always done it is this is the punishment you get and this is what you need to do. And it's your fault, not mine. And I don't have to be understanding because you did this. And I love your, um, your, your, your mentioning of grace and sort of just taking a deep breath. And I think if there's anything that 2020 has taught us is that I think giving grace to others, whether you can't make it to work on time because you've been, you know, uh, direct contact with somebody who has uh, with COVID and you, you know that you've got individuals with maybe a couple of kids who have their daycare closed. And you have to be understanding of your coworkers. Well, that's the same kind of grace that you're talking about, but talking in the criminal justice system in general. And where it's just that is that understanding of coming to another perspective um, is something I think we should understand now better, shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think that there are fear tactics that are used by, you know, the media um, or even sometimes in campaigns. So, for example, um, we hear about, you know, these uh, serial murder cases where the the murderer chopped somebody up and ate them and stuffed them in their refrigerator. Yeah. That's not who we're talking about. You know, do you know anyone um, I mean, and some, so I think that um, for the 5% of people that um, are, are just so, I'll call it deranged, that jail and, pr- you know, prison is appropriate. But yeah. the 95% of everybody else is who I'm talking about. And let's yeah. not confuse those two. Exactly. I think that's great. Though you did mention Law and Order, and that is one of the shows that got me through college, uh, I think. And one of the greatest lines, and I'll mention this because it's just the best line ever from Adam Schiff. And I will, and I will, I will remember this from the day till the day I die. Was when he talked about it. Yeah, their uh, their defense is like my grandma's nightgown; it covers everything. And I've never been able to get that out of my brain. It's the greatest line of all time. So we have this in common. I just it was obsessed with that show. But you're right. It does give you this uh, very skewed view of all criminality mm-hmm. when uh, you're talking about and maybe you have some numbers and some percentages of low level drug offenders. Mm-hmm. Okay? It is uh, I, I know that states still have three strike rules and that has to do with some of these things. Right. But you're getting caught with a, a minor amount of 
of weed, which is, by the way, legal in like most states now. Um, or you have a, a, a run in with, you know, sort of a little bit of you know, an alcohol problem, for example. What percentages are those of individuals who are in our criminal uh, justice system or who are in prison for these very low level things that on paper you're looking at it like this doesn't make sense for what they're getting from a jail time? Um, I don't know what the national statistics are, but I can give you some in, in the county that I live in, yeah. um, which is King County. And interestingly, um, 50 percent of, of people that go to jail return. And in our county here in King County, Washington, and I was looking at the statistics and I thought it was interesting because we've certainly loosened the drug usage laws in our state, Mm -hmm. but the drug trafficking laws are still there. Interesting. So, um, so you'd be surprised about how many people are still stopped. Yeah. Um, for drug-related crimes, even though we've um, started to remove, I would say, some of the criminality with drug possession. Yeah, interesting. Another interesting fact I, I did learn I, and I did read nationally was that um, almost 70% of people at the time of arrest mm-hmm. are under the influence of drugs. And you could even see that with George Floyd. Mm-hmm. So. Now, wouldn't that make sense to you, right? At the time they, you know, that uh, a crime is being committed, someone's under the influence mm-hmm. of, of drugs. So our jails in our country are becoming um, places where people that have uncontrolled drug use are going. Mm-hmm. And, and our jails are the last places where we can help deal with that successfully. One of the main tenants that you have um, at Pioneer Human Services is treatment. Yes. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about that because what you said is fascinating is that you are using now the jail system to become treatment centers or that's where you're putting people who should be in treatment centers. Yes. And even if you are the most radically conservative human being on the planet, and you're just a dollar and cents guy. Let's just say you're a libertarian to the hill. You're like, I'm only about dollars. The amount of cost it takes to put somebody in jail, to the yes. amount of cost somebody has to use for treatment programs, that cannot be the same amount, can it? <laughs> no, especially if you consider the fact that the person is going to cycle in and out and in and out of jail. And then every time that they are in jail, they have to have representation. So um, so there's lots of costs associated with jail. You've got the cost of the, of the policeman who stopped and arrested you, the transportation cost to get you there, the, the, uh, the cost uh, that it takes to, um, um, to move the person from the police car to the jail sale and all that's involved. You've got to feed the person and provide medical care while they're there. Um, And then you release them and then the whole cycle starts over again. So if you looked at it at a point in time, Mm -hmm. you might say, oh, one night in jail costs $60. But if that person is is in jail 60 times, um, 
we're much better off with the treatment focus. Right. It's, yeah. And so how does Pioneer Human Services involve treatment in, in, in the programs? What does that what does that look like from a programming services? Are you uh, uh, I'll, I'll let the floor is yours on that uh, on that on that topic? Treatment looks different in different places places because the reentry process is community based. So what we try to do is to is to provide services that are in line with the values of the county that we're in. We find that's the most successful approach. Now that can't be something that everybody does. Uh, that has got to be to be uh, so self-aware that each county has different issues. And what you're doing, and this is this is what this is what's so fascinating to me about is you're not using a blanketed approach of this is how it should be done for everybody. Is that a unique um, individualized approach to each county? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that we have to because uh, we worked we work hand in hand in partnership with the counties that we live in. Mm-hmm. And if we try to do it differently, we won't have the local support. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so some counties that we are in really are, are trying to move more and more and more into the diversion space, which means we, we don't even want you to enter in into the justice system at all. So can we divert you? Can the police bring you to a facility where we can work with you? And we have great success there. Other counties are different, right? And what they would rather do is... Um, is, you know, maybe use a felony diversion method, and then we will work with that county. Some counties um, or cities are what, what we call harm reduction. So um, so that means as a provider that we have to uh, follow their lead. So you know, each of the geographic regions that we're in has a different personality. And what we have to do is to align with that. But as long as within that, we can provide the uh, most current evidence-based treatment that combines reducing criminogenic risk with addressing their unique needs, um, we can have success. That's what we believe. How you, you mentioned this at the top of our interview too on how young some of this starts, right? With uh, with either a parent who um, has a, has an addiction, and you've got kids who maybe probably shouldn't be. Uh, alone for long periods of time. And that begins this cycle uh, mm-hmm. that you're seeing. Uh, how important is it for early intervention into some of these situations? And what can we do about that? Or maybe what is Pioneer Human Services doing to um, start at the start? Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you talk to some of our um, adult clients and you ask them, when did things kind of start for you? Most of them will talk about um, things that happened to them in their teens. Mm. Maybe they were involved in juvenile justice. Maybe something happened when they were 10. Maybe a parent died when they were eight or nine. Or maybe they saw um, a murder or something you know, traumatic. Or maybe they um, were raised in an impoverished area where there was where more violence was seen on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Um, so, um, I think that, uh, programs for young children are very important. And then I think when kids go to school, um, and they start to act out first and second grade, you read about this all the time, Mm -hmm. especially with, with boys of color, right? The teacher might suspend them 
Mm-hmm. And um, and then that suspension will become expulsion. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you get this uh, disenfranchisement from school. And so I think that one thing we will need to do is is for our teachers to acknowledge that maybe the expulsion, that permanent expulsion from class, is there another alternative mm-hmm. so that we can keep that child in school? Mm-hmm. And um, and each school district will have to to come up with their own methodology, but that's a big part of it. It you know I actually interviewed a class one time. We have uh, our job training classes have about fourteen students a class. We offer them once every three weeks. And one time I just I just this is anecdotal. I just said, "What happened with you?" Mm-hmm. And one student said, "Well, you know, uh, I dropped out," of, and they were all high school dropouts. And they'd all been to uh, to either drug court or jail or prison, and we were supporting them. Mm-hmm. And one said, you know, our family was so poor, I was embarrassed. We moved 10 times in one year. I was just, I, I just couldn't get into school. One person said, I was struggling with my gender. I didn't want to, I, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I couldn't go to school. One person was, um, you know, I couldn't sit still. I just didn't like school. And um, in second grade, I just, you know, got caught up with the gang. I mean, these at one point, these children are just children. Yep. And then they begin to make bad decisions, which beget bad decisions, which beget bad decisions. And then their view alters mm-hmm. to a view that we call as antisocial. Now, we can change that. With cognitive behavior therapy, and we can change that with treatment. Mm-hmm. But those are things we must address. Yeah, interesting. Um, you also mentioned partnerships, and I'm yes. so glad you did because I think one of the one of the things that in the nonprofit world that our uh, groups are very scared about and they are very hesitant about is partnering up with other like-minded organizations because of either a fear of donors vanishing and going to another place fear of losing your own identity and going to and, and individuals finding other folks who are maybe doing something different and more exciting than you. Whereas I think the only way one grows and only way one thrives is to embrace as many partnerships as possible because you're all trying to solve generally the same sort of solution, which is making the world a better place, your community a better place, and specifically maybe even working in the legal system a better place. Talk to me a little bit about some of the strategic partnerships that you've developed that have been instrumental in mm-hmm. uh, you becoming such a great resource uh, for your community. So the partnerships that are that we've really worked on, I would say, are in the legislative arena. Mm. Um, and I do want to say, Patrick, I want to come back to uh, nonprofits partnering because I think that some of what you said is 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 not as true as it may seem. Ooh, so I, uh, well, I, yes. I would like to come back to that. Let's go. But, yes. um, but with uh, so for us, for example, uh, we have we, we are very active from an advocacy perspective. And and the problem is too big for us to solve by ourselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, what we've done is we've taken on one particular issue, which is around housing and justice and um, and trying to uh, get laws passed that limit the ability of landlords to discriminate against people who have had an interaction with the legal system. 
So we also have partners that are working on um, sentencing reform. We have other partners that are working on prison conditions. We have other partners that are working on communication with prisons and how you're treated and, and access to medical care. And then we have other organizations that are working on allowing families to visit and collateral consequences. So there is no way that Pioneer by itself could address all these, all these issues that have built up over time to make this pyramid of um, just almost like a fence that keeps people in. It's almost like a, a pyramid of bricks that we have to un- you know, unbuild, debuild, tear down yeah. brick by brick by brick. So mm-hmm. it takes a, a number of us between the ACL, ACLU, housing advocates, reentry advocates. Here it's called civil survival. Mm-hmm. Um, across the country, it's just USA leadership. But we, but these there are local and national groups that we all have to say, okay, we'll take this piece, we'll take this brick. Yeah, and then we work together. I love that. Well, I think let's circle back because I, I think, and from a perspective of just trying to figure out how to navigate some of these solutions, it's there's a lot of walls that go up along nonprofits. And so I love this, that we're going to have a conversation about how do you see nonprofits not necessarily uh, not searching for partnerships? Mm-hmm. That perspective, I think it needs to be heard by nonprofits who may be in that mindset in the first place. I think that nonprofits develop because they see a gap in service. Yes. And, and, and so it's not that they're trying to compete or not partner. Mm-hmm. They, they develop because you're not serving that gap. Yes. So for, ex- you know, so, so in our um, Seattle and King County, um, you know, we have nonprofits that just focus on the um, the migrant, the population from Mexico that is Spanish speaking. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, they're arrested at higher rates as well, sure. particularly in central Washington. And what they would say to Pioneer is if your staff is not Spanish speaking, you're not serving our clients well, mm-hmm. and they have a point. Mm-hmm. And my, and then our response is that you know, for us to have language proficiency across all the languages, that would be um, something that we wouldn't be able to afford to do. Mm-hmm. So we have to partner with them. Yeah. Just like there are, we have partners that are religious, specifically religious. Um, and, and so we need that partnership. So I appreciate our partners because what they are trying to get at is a gap in services. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, not enough people give, so there's a fear that there isn't enough resources, and all nonprofits are resource-constrained, um, but it's not that we compete. What we do is we, um, you know, we have, what we, have our, we have what we call navigators, and when we intake someone, we'll say, okay, maybe this other nonprofit might be better for you. Now, if that nonprofit is, is at capacity, then we'll, then we'll go on and we'll serve them the best we can. Mm-hmm. But that's more the picture of nonprofits. It's, it's that they believe that this is the best way to serve this, this population, and you're not doing it good enough, nonprofit A. Mm-hmm. So nonprofit D needs to, needs to develop and do it. Mm-hmm. You, uh, 
created to fill the gaps that the government shouldn't, can't, or won't do. And exactly. that's, been, that's been the system for the nonprofits forever. And I think I love that as a mindset of like, yeah, it's it, we're all strapped in the in the in sort of financial resources sort of thing. The easiest way to sort of get rid of that fear is to partner with other people and other organizations who are doing something similar to de-stress you in a certain area that they might be better expertise at. So you can mm-hmm. focus on the stuff that you're really good at and you can serve others even better. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have to stress yourself out on funding multiple programs that might not be in your wheelhouse because other people are doing that. And that's what I really love about your partnership statement there too, is is showing and drawing a line between helping everything and then mm-hmm. meeting a number of people. Uh, that's right. Just that. That's amazing. And, and culture is important. Sure. And, um, and culture is important. And so um, the YWCA has a, a program just for females. I think that's important to have, right? Um, we have partners that just work with Spanish-speaking um, cultures. I think that's important to have. So um, we, you know, what we try to to focus on are people that want to have a career mm-hmm. in the in um, a machine field. Um, that. Um, you know, we, we focus on people that have substance use disorder and um, and we're proud of that. So I think it's important that 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 we all that we all do focus somewhere. You mentioned that from uh, finding jobs and job resources is really one mm-hmm. of the hardest things. I think people who are involved in the legal system at an early age and have a longer sheet than they probably should. And then getting that job. And like you mentioned earlier, it's like, well, the only thing you can get is an entry-level position, which doesn't right. pay the bills and doesn't uh, help out in your long-term goals because that de- that stresses you to the hilt because you probably have other things to uh, to pay for with you've got families and that kind of thing. What are you uh, doing? I- I'd love to hear kind of your um, involvement in, uh, in-, in job placement and-, and job creation that you are in the social enterprise thing, which is just such a fascinating piece. Um, how-, how are you helping in that department? We have job training at um, at two of our locations, actually, it's more than that. But the the, the signature programs are in two locations, Seattle and Spokane, and we um, help people find jobs. And what we'll do is we'll take a look at their work history and provide an assessment. If they've got work history, then we'll just really just um, help them with interview clothing. We'll help them develop a resume. We'll help them deal with the resume gap, and then we'll help them with job finding tools. If the person hasn't worked ever legally Mm -hmm. and they haven't um, completed high school, then we put them in a a three or four week uh, job training class that really works on the barriers that a person has. So, So typically that person will need more services. We'll have to help them get identification, work on a driver's license, find a place to live, do a full health assessment, have a housing assessment, and also begin um, changing their thought process through um, um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, so that we can move that person to make them more appropriate for the labor market. And then um, after their place, then we have nine months of case management Mm -hmm. as um, our clients begin to make better decisions right? It's a journey. And so they have to have a resource to help them make decisions because they haven't had to, 
to do that before, or they haven't made good decisions before. And, um, and so many of those decisions involve, okay, you finally, you know, have a house, we've got all your, um, we haven't really talked about here, just some consequences of incarceration, but one of it is a, a child support bills that are high, and then also um, uh, fines and fees. So the average, I would say, debt that we see is about $45,000. That's the average. And this is to a person that's never worked mm. legally. Mm. And so you have to get all these things mitigated, all these barriers mitigated and, um, and get that individual situated and then help them make better decisions, whether it's can't let ex-boyfriend back in the house because ex-boyfriend is still using drugs or helping them find a new, you know, helping them maintain their um, cohort of, positive social relationships, um, you know, dealing with the challenges of life, helping them get their children back. All of these are challenges that people have that are invisible to many, many of us. And what would you say, um, because I I know you've probably got a billion and a half success stories. Um, Yes. What you mentioned is this is a long play. This isn't an immediate solution. And I think a lot of people wish that this was a magic wand that could just go, all right, get your stuff together and let's go. Like get your life in order and let's do this. And not in any point in time in human history has any one person ever been able to do that, right? This is a, like you said, a journey. What do you consider long-term successes? And maybe you can kind of maybe share a story or two of some of those successes that have played out that you've seen. Um, Because that is some of those things where you, I think a lot of nonprofits are always looking for that quick, that quick fix. A lot of donors are looking for some quick fixes. And this takes sustained energy and funding and, and, and work, uh, not only on your, probably your client side, but from your donors, patients, and your board of directors uh, sort of understanding that this is a long process. But I'd love to hear some long-term successes that you've seen um, at the organization. I've seen so many, it's hard for me to even choose. Um, because uh, only 5% of the people that we serve recidivate out of our job training program. That's incredible. Yes, but I would say any good reentry provider could have the same results. Love it. We're good, but we're but anyone could do it if they if they did what we what we do. I believe that. So I think when I think about success stories, I, you know, um, the people that come to mind are the people that I've watched them from the day they got to pioneer. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they may work for someone else today. Um, but, uh, we have so many success stories, you know, the general manager in, um, our, um, our pioneer industries organization, which is our aerospace company, um, um, has been formally incarcerated. And today she's the general manager. Um, you know, the director of one of our largest residential treatment facilities, um, at one point was a high school dropout with an addiction. So, um, they, they, they just run the gamut and, um, and, and, and I, and we get pictures of them having children and them having kids and, you know, living in the suburbs. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're all just amazing stories, but, and they happen. It's, it's not even unusual. Yeah. 
And that has it's, to be such a uh, such a refreshing perspective to somebody who just starts working with you mm-hmm. to, to sort of give them that there is this light at the end of the tunnel, that that darkest day that you've had that got mm-hmm. you to call us and that we're working with is like, let's listen here, though. What you're experiencing here is this, this and this. This is where you can kind of go. I mean, that's got to be just such a joy um, if you ever forget and have one of those bad days where you get too many spreadsheets you need to do in a board meeting to prep for is that um, you get to walk through some of those accessories and just go know that you're making such an amazing difference and what a cool Mm -hmm. experience to have. So when I, you know, one of, one of the ways that I try to, to, to stay focused is that I try to spend time with our job training class. We actually do a lot more than job training. We have you know, we serve 10,000 people a year. The job training classes are the classes that I just happened to visit. Yeah. Um, and I, and then I go to their graduation and, um, and then I have a notebook and I write down their speeches. So I, I just have some thoughts that I'll just share from our last graduation and um, from the students and um, and our class, this the job training class is called Roadmap to Success, and the students have a nickname for it. They call it Roadmaps, and the the students are generally between twenty and fifty years old, mm-hmm. and they've been incarcerated an average of at least seven years, and um, and they have on average, like I said, forty thousand dollars in debt, and most of them um, haven't graduated from high school and don't have job skills, but they want to be better. And, you know, and we've served over a thousand students in this class. Um, but But here are some quotes from the last graduation. If you know someone struggling who's ever been incarcerated, send them to Roadmaps. I feel more confident in my ability to find a job. I know what to say if someone says, why do you have that gap in your resume? Why do you have that that?" that gap in your background. They've, they've taught me how I can just be myself and they've taught me that I always have a family. I know that Pioneer will always help me. Um, another student said, um, I'm living here at one of our facilities. He lived in the Dalton. And he said, I'm living here in the Dalton. I just got a job offer from a company that offers benefits and will still allow me to make my appointments during the day for for drug court and treatment and they have a career path for me things have never looked better um another student said um when i got my interview and i was offered the job i needed work clothes and boots and one of the staff actually had them sent to a locker because it's covid Hmm. i was locked up at 20 i just released and i'm now 38 things are overwhelming Technology is different and times have changed. And this causes me great anxiety. It was nice to be around people that have been through what I've been through, that have seen my struggles and that are giving me the chance so that I can be successful. See, that's amazing. And you know, what's really funny and it closes the loop on something that we, that we touched on early in the interview, which is what happens early on in these you know, teenagers and even kids' life. And what you mentioned was, there was a time where they were uncomfortable and so they didn't go back. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you've given them in that first quote that you said is I am now comfortable with answering the question or I'm mm-hmm. comfortable understanding where my gap was. And that's, that's the fill. You filled that gap. 
which is what mm-hmm. you as a nonprofit organization is built to do. And that is freaking amazing. Karen, you have been a, a fantastic guest on the show. This is one of the more fascinating conversations that I've had um, on the official Do Good Better podcast. And if somebody wants to learn more, because we haven't even scratched the surface, to be honest with you, uh, how do they get a hold of you? Where do they go to find out uh, a little bit more about Pioneer Human Services? Come to our website, pioneerhumanservices.org. Take our quiz, backslash quiz, that you can learn about mass incarceration. Um, follow us on any of our social media. Join us. Join our family. And um, and we can change the world together. I'm so excited. We're going to have all those links in the uh, show notes so that go over there and click on there. If you've got extra cash, you can donate as well. Uh, Karen, it has been so great having you on. Thank you so much for being a guest on uh, this episode of the official Do Good Better podcast. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Patrick. Fantastic. Documenting donor information is the most important thing you can do as a fundraiser, as a nonprofit organization. And hey, if you don't know where to start and try to figure out where and what system to get, go to DonorDoc.com. DonorDoc is the CRM system the donor database system. It has wonderful reporting. It has easy-to-use dashboards. Frankly, it's the greatest thing that you will have at your disposal as a fundraising organization. Go to DonorDoc.com. There are countless videos, books, articles, and folks out there with suggestions on how to raise more money. Of course, that's a major problem. Too much information. Do Good University has an online library of lectures, courses, and trainings that concentrate on one thing, making fundraising simple. Come join other like-minded do-gooders who are looking to unclutter their fundraising life. Enroll at Do Good University today at dogoodbetterconsulting.com.